Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church on this absolutely gorgeous Father's Day. And since everyone else has said it, uh, let me throw in my two cents and say Happy Father's Day to all of our amazing dads, our granddads, and our spiritual dads. Uh, we so appreciate the passion that you have for God and for your, uh, your family and for our community. I, I say it often, I'll say it again, we have without a doubt the absolute best dads on the planet here at Community Christian Church. We really do. Thank you for being such a tremendous influence uh, to our world. Now, typically on Father's Day, I will prepare a special Father's Day message. Uh, this is something I've been doing for the past 29 years. However, since we're right in the middle of our Summer on the Mount series, uh, things have changed a little bit. And even though the content and the scriptures that I've been assigned to share apply to all of us, I do not want the men to feel cheated or left out. And so ladies, if you don't mind, if it's okay with you, what I'd like to do is share one quick Bible verse for the men. Is that all right? Thank you. I appreciate your support uh, and your understanding. Uh, the verse is found in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Here's what it says. Guys, are you ready? One guy. <laughs> Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong, let all that you do be done in love. One more time. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. Here Paul gives the guys a list of five instructions and they're all noteworthy. They all have merit. They're all significant. But when I read that verse, the one Fraser, the one statement that jumped off the page was that last one. Let all that you do be done in love. Not most of what you do, not even 99%. Paul said, let everything that you do be clothed in love. And how many of you guys have learned that's not an easy assignment? Very challenging. Takes a lot of practice, a lot of prayer, and patience to perfect. But if you need a few pointers, I'm going to ask you to stick around this summer. Because the greatest example of love that we have in the scripture is Jesus. And that's our goal with this series. To emulate his example and to follow passionately after him. So once again, guys, happy Father's Day. Thank you for being who you are. Okay, for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And last Sunday, in lesson number two of the series, we covered the Beatitudes. Nine proverb-like sayings Jesus used to introduce his sermon. Let's review them again this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Okay, these nine Beatitudes, or beautiful attitudes, by definition, promote genuine happiness. Not just a smile on your face, but actually possessing authentic spiritual satisfaction and joy. And all nine of these should make up the inner character of a believer. In other words, Jesus said, as Christ followers, this should be our motivation and our mindset. Now, we may read these nine Beatitudes and maybe even memorize them and be tempted to think this is the way that we should act in church when we're trying to be on our best behavior and make a, a good impression for all the other believers. You know, uh, humble in spirit, uh, meek and merciful, uh, hungry for God and pure in heart. And even though that's a great thing to try and do, it's not what Jesus had in mind, not at all. In fact, with these nine Beatitudes, he was attempting to communicate just how powerful this approach is when compared to or laid aside all of the typical arrogant and me-first mindsets, which is how the Pharisees and the religious leaders lived. And to present this contrast and make his point, Jesus crowned the Beatitudes with two brilliant metaphors. Any idea what those metaphors are? Can you read that little subtitle underneath there? Salt and light. And that's the subject of the message this morning. So let's look at it in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 13. And I did hear that response over here. Pretty sharp gal right there. Thank you, Deb. You, who? You. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14. You, who? You. You are the light of the world. A town or city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, here Jesus said, we, the believers, are salt and light. 
were salt and light, not to impress other believers or the church community, but rather to impact the world in which we live. And so look, let's look at these one at a time. First, Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth. Now, you may hear that this morning, or you may read that as a believer, and think being compared to salt is not all that glorious. But in Bible times, for the people who were hearing it for the first time, salt conveyed a dramatic illustration. You see, today salt is very common. We use salt without even thinking about it. You find salt on every table in every restaurant. We go to the fast food restaurant like McDonald's and we grab a handful of packets of salt and we use a couple of them. What do we do with the rest of them? We throw them away. We saturate our french fries with salt. We season our meat and our eggs. We sprinkle or even pour salt into our soups and our sauces and other, other recipes and we do it like it's going out of style. But in the ancient world, Salt was a rare commodity. It was costly, very expensive, and scarce, and poor people could not even get their hands on it. In fact, salt was so valuable, Roman soldiers were actually paid part of their wages in salt. It was like an employment benefit. They made about 300 denarii a year, along with a little bag of salt. And the salt supplement that the soldiers received was called a saldare, or salarium. It's where we get our English word salary. You know, the money we make for how hard we work. In the first century, the time frame when Jesus was preaching this sermon, everyone was aware of the importance of salt. And at that time, the number one purpose for salt was not to season or to flavor food. Salt was a preservative. It was used to preserve meat. Now, keep in mind, back then, there was no such thing as an ice box or an ice maker. Refrigeration of any kind didn't exist until the 17th century. And so the one and only way to keep meat from spoiling was to salt it. Salt is 40% sodium. And it's the sodium that draws bacteria causing moisture out of the meat. And once the meat is dried out, you can store it without refrigeration for an extended period of time. Bottom line, in Bible days, meat or food that was not wrapped or dipped or prepared in a salt solution, a, a generous and healthy supply of salt, would quickly spoil, rot, and decay. Have you ever smelled rotting meat? It's disgusting. Absolutely putrid, gross. Turn your stomach. And so when Jesus said, when he made this statement, you are the salt of the earth, all of his disciples in the crowd and most everyone else who were listening to them to him, they, they knew precisely what he was talking about. And they fully understood this metaphor. Namely, listen carefully now, Christ followers who listen to the words of Jesus and then lock into them and live that way, they have the properties and the power to preserve humanity. 
I'm going to say that again because, you know, that was worth you getting out of bed and coming or tuning in this morning. I always say that. My son makes fun of me, but it, it was worth it. I'm going to say it again. Christ followers who listen carefully to the teachings of Jesus lock into those teachings and make a commitment to live that way, they contain the properties and the power to preserve humanity. That's what salt does. It preserves meat. You see, left on their own, people will do what people always have done. Spiritually decline, deteriorate, and be reduced to depravity. That's the typical lot for people. But as the salt of the earth, we, the church of Jesus Christ, have been given an important assignment. We're supposed to prevent that from happening. That's our assignment. That's our purpose. To spiritually influence the world around us with the good news of the gospel. And how many of you uh, remember and understand the gospel is still good news. It's good news, not bad news. It's a salvation and redemptive story that every single person on the planet needs to hear. The gospel that we're presenting, people need to hear it. But the best way for them to hear it is to see it lived out in our lives. And so... We're communicating the gospel message not just with our mouths, not just by preaching it, but by the way that we live. And after calling us salt, after reminding us and, and, and using this metaphor to communicate to us how important it is for the church to act as a preservative for humanity, Jesus goes on to make another statement. He said this in the same sermon, same time. If the salt loses its saltiness, if it no longer has the ability to preserve and prevent spoilage, what good is it? It's really of no benefit at all. In other words, saltless salt has little to no value. Now, how many of you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's recorded in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. It's not a very good story, but still it's in the word of God. The reason I say it's not a very good story is because uh, with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God passed judgment on those two cities. But check this out. A long time ago, uh, when reading this account and just kind of presenting it before the Lord, the, the Spirit of the Lord uh, impressed upon me that the reason Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed wasn't so much for an increase in sin and wickedness, but rather because of a lack of righteousness. There's no salt there. It wasn't because Sodom and Gomorrah was so wicked. It was because there was a lack of righteousness. Remember the rather lengthy conversation that God had with Abraham. And they went through a, a pretty good little ordeal there. God told Abraham, specifically said to him, I would not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if you could find some righteous people there. God said, I wouldn't do it. And yes, this is an Old Testament story, but it's Jesus who brings it up and makes it a part of the New Testament. During his teachings, in Luke chapter 17 and verse 32, Jesus calls to mind this story, and he says, I want you to remember it from time to time, and I want you to remember Lot's wife. 
Jesus asked us to do that. You see, with Sodom and Gomorrah about to be judged, two angels went to Lot, that was Abraham's nephew, and to Lot's wife and to Lot's two daughters. And the angel said to the family, God is being merciful to you. He's showing you some mercy. He wants to save you. So get out of Dodge right now. Get out as fast as you can and don't stop running. And the angel said, whatever you do, when the judgment begins, do not turn back. Don't, you know, don't, don't look back. Don't even be concerned about what's happening here. You just go forward. But remember Lot's wife. She was saddened over what was happening. She didn't want to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where she lived. She had people there that she knew, friends. And she looked back in disobedience to the instruction that the angel had given to her. And do you remember what happened to Lot's wife? Anyone? Yeah, kind of an odd thing. She, the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. Weird. Jesus said, as salt, if it loses its saltiness, or if instead of being a godly example to others, we let the ungodliness of this world impact or affect us, it cancels out or invalidates our influence. What good is salt if there's no power to preserve, if there's no potential, no property to preserve? You know, today, we can no longer live as believers with one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot out. I mean, maybe we were able to get away with that years ago. We cannot do it today. Not, it's not going to succeed for us. It's not going to work. Jesus said a little differently. He said, you can't serve two masters. You have to choose. And so this is a day to understand how important it is to pursue the righteousness of God and nothing else. Now, in addition to salt, here in, in, in this sermon, this part of the sermon, Jesus said we're also called to be light. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world. He said you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Now, if you were to get up in the middle of the night, say 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, go outside, go for a walk or just look outside, during a cloudless full moon, what would you see? Well, you'd pretty much see everything. Because a full moon would light up the sky. But how many of you know that unlike the sun or the other billions and billions of stars in the universe, the moon has no light of its own? It doesn't have the ability to produce any light. Moonlight is actually sunlight that shines on the moon and then bounces back or ricochets back to earth. The sunlight that you see when you look at the moon, especially during a full moon, it reflects off of old volcanoes and craters and lava flows on the moon's surface. And so when Jesus used this second metaphor and said we are the light of the world, he wasn't expecting us to come up with our own light. He wasn't saying we have to produce this light. We're simply called to reflect his light, his glory, his renown. That's what we were singing about all during the worship time. We have not been given the assignment to produce our own light. 
We're reflecting his light. That's why a little later on in the same passage, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and then pat you on the back. Is that what it says? No, see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. Our light, the light of the gospel that we reflect, it originates with God's glory. And the author and the source of this light is who? It's Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he said in John chapter 8 and verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light. And then he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you read that statement carefully, and you focus your attention on it, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Immediately, what you can conclude is that walking in darkness is a choice. I'm gonna say that again. When Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of light. That means the people who are walking in darkness, they're doing that by choice. Again, John 3.19 says, not John 3.16, the hallmark verse of the Christian faith that we always love to quote. Three verses later in John 3.19, Jesus said, here's the verdict. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. The church of Jesus Christ represents the light that Jesus shines through us. But rather than accept that light, people, they choose darkness. They choose to walk in spiritual darkness. Not just darkness itself, that's one thing, but intentional darkness? Choosing to walk in darkness when you have the option of light, that seems pretty foolish when we say it that way, doesn't it? It's almost like choosing to be blind when you have the option of sight. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yet, the spiritual darkness, the reality of the world's sinful condition, is what makes Jesus' pronouncement and assertion to the church so rewarding. Because as the light of the world, we have the privilege of reflecting his light. We reflect his light. We reflect his goodness to the world around us. And in the process, we can witness unsafe people in our world being translated and rescued from the dominion of darkness. And friend, as a believer, it doesn't get any better than that. When we shine the light of the gospel message, when we share the good news, when we articulate that Jesus is our Savior and Lord and people respond to that and we watch them walk out of darkness into light, does that not get you excited? Doesn't it fire you up on the inside? You know, some people, you pray for them for years and years and you sow all kinds of seed in them. And then one day someone comes along and they hear something and they get saved. That should excite us because that's what we're called to do. Rescue people from darkness. 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way. But you, who? You. 
You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a holy nation. His own special or peculiar people that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we represent, not just light, but the astonishing, remarkable, and life-changing light that the Father has given to us. We are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And here's the kicker. As his own peculiar people, we will automatically shine his light in the darkness because it's not coming from our own source. And if we have a bad day, we still reflect his light. If things aren't going our way, we still reflect his light because it's not ours, it's his. That's why you can usually tell when you're coming into contact with another believer and you don't know that it's a believer. You can just see or you can at very least sense the light, the light of his presence because believers beam. True believers reflect his light. And you might not even know it, but you, you'd say, you know, I, I got to believe that was a Christian. That was a person who knows their God. And again, during this same sermon, Jesus basically said, there's really only one way to stop or prevent the light. You've got to put a bushel or a bucket over your head. That's the only way you can prevent it. You have to cover the light to prevent it from shining because it's his light. Philippians 2.15, one of my favorite books in the Bible, one of my favorite verses, that you, who? You. See these verses that we've been reading? Not directed to everybody else, directed to you, that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Amen. Just a little bit of light will defeat the darkness every time. Now, when I look over the years of my life, when I contemplate my relationship with the Lord, without a doubt, without any question, he has revealed his faithfulness to me. Time and time again, maybe you have the same testimony. Example after example, experience after experience, he has proven himself faithful. That does not mean I've lived the charmed life. If you only knew. Like everyone else, I've had my share of tests and trials. I've experienced hardship and brokenness and sickness and pain. But through it all, God has sustained me. He has never left me to fend for myself. I've never felt alone. I know that God is with me. Amen. And I'm confident in making the statement that he is a covenant-keeping God. And just like we sang earlier, his promises are yes and amen. All of the promises of God, even when we do not experience them, they're still true. God is a faithful God. And one of the ways that he proves his faithfulness to us, one of the ways that he has preserved me and my ministry is with other people. When I was as low as I could possibly go, 
in addition to my own family, God has sent and surrounded me with loving and caring people who have stood by my side, prayed for me, and encouraged me. He's done that over and over again. Twelve years ago, when I was hospitalized with a heart condition at age 55, I was devastated. Diagnosed with AFib, and for the next year and a half, had to be cardioverted or shocked back into normal sinus rhythm at least 15 times. That's when the enemy started to talk to me and he lied to me, told me that I was going to die young, just like my dad did, and I would never experience good health again. And at that time, the Lord sent me a nurse, a Christian nurse, who reached out to me, spoke into my life, encouraged me, and told me that God was going to bring me through. Been 12 years. Years ago, when our church was going through an extremely difficult financial period of time during our phase two construction, we were facing bankruptcy and litigation. As you might imagine, I was greatly disappointed. I thought we were going to lose it all. I, I mean, I, I, I thought that they were going to come, put a padlock on the door and say, and, and evict us. And it was at that time that the Lord sent me, believe it or not, an attorney, a Christian lawyer. And he supported me. He encouraged me. He actually represented one of the firms that was suing us. And this attorney stood by my side. In 2013, when my grandson, Anthony Nathaniel, died, I was as broken as I've ever been in my life. I'm asking God, why? How? For what reason? We prayed, we fasted, we cried out to the Lord, we've only tried to serve you. And when I was grieving and inwardly just having a difficult time, the Lord sent a minister my way who counseled me, prayed with me, and let me know it was okay for me to admit my heart was broken and crushed. And when as a pastor... I buried from our congregation three-year-old Isabella Moustakis and three-year-old Alessi Lopez and 12-year-old Matt Killawall. I suffered a severe crisis of faith, especially with the last one. The circumstances surrounding Matt's death pushed me over the edge. I didn't know if I could ever stand up here and preach again, if I'd ever have any faith again. And in each situation, Lord sent, the Lord sent me a messenger of mercy to sustain me. He used people to preserve me. God used people to preserve me. He is faithful. He doesn't abandon us. He is always with us. But he uses people. Friends, during the Sermon on the Mount, the verses that we cover today, Jesus makes a powerful statement. He says that as the church, we have been given an important assignment. That the Spirit of the living God has empowered us to be salt and light 
to a dark and decaying world. When you read through them, those verses, that's what they mean. You and, I, you and I, we're salt and light. We have been assigned messengers and ambassadors of Christ sent by God to ease the pain, the suffering, and the hardship of other people. Now I mean agents of mercy. That's the purpose of the church. This is the reason that God has anointed us, as he's empowered us. That's the call. The most profound aspiration we could ever pursue. Not to be judgmental as a church, not to be critical or forceful, but helpful. Amen. Not to try and work the, the gospel to our advantage or spin it so that it benefits us but rather to contribute, to be a source of service and support to the people around us. This is what God has called us to do. And friend, that's the heart of salt and light. I'm going to say it again. That's the heart of salt and light, to preserve humanity and reflect the message of his love. Two brilliant metaphors to crown a beatitude-based mindset. Wow. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you for your presence in this place right now that is causing us to be so silent. Lord, we thank you for the conviction power of the Holy Spirit because it's conviction that draws us closer to you, and that's what we're after, Lord. That's what we desire more than anything else. And years ago, you gathered together a group of people, and there were disciples in the crowd, there were unbelievers, there were people that were involved in all other kinds of things, and you communicated to them kingdom of heaven principles because that's how you lived. It's how you conducted yourself in the heavenly realm and you came to earth and showed the exact same example because you didn't want us to wait till we got to heaven before we lived this way. You wanted us to live this way now. You said that you came, that we might have life and have it to the fore, have it more abundantly. You want us to experience that abundant, that abundant living right here, right now. And Lord, we admit, we gotta change our ways. We're salt and light. That's what you called us to do. You, you've called us to preserve humanity. You've called us to ease the pain and the suffering of those around us. Not to think we're high and mighty, you said our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. That's the example they lived. Father, I pray for the spirit of humility to fall in this place. Such a powerful gift that you've given to us that it would change us from the inside out. Yes, this is the summertime, but we're praying it's a summer of summers. 
one that we'll never forget. Do the work in our hearts, Lord. Sometimes it takes a few minutes. Speak to us. Minister as only you can. And I thank you for a group of people who have a desire to pursue you passionately. I pray you administer in these closing moments. Amen.